Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, Hi. Cool, cool, cool. How you doing? Um, not bad, man. Uh, just chilling a bit after fighting with the compiler for the last two hours. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've, if you know me, but my name is Ayo. Um, one of the, I guess, organizers of this. Um, I want to make sure I'm pronouncing your name properly. Please, could you tell me? Um, so the name is pronounced as Ebert. So the E is like an A, right? So it's like Ebert. Okay. Yeah. So there are people, Ebert. people prefer to use the other name, which is a bit easier, called Tabby. No, Ebert is fine. I mean, that's okay. not hard to say. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, nice with you. Okay. I'm not sure. I know I've met with um, um uh what's his name again? It's Bio yeah, and I'm, Chidi. Uh, yeah, I've met with Bio and Chidi, but not uh, with you, so uh Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a Pleasure, yeah, pleasure. So I guess like we'll wait um like a few minutes for people to join. I saw that there were like a hundred and something people that marked this as. Sure, sure. Yeah. Do you mind um, talking about the compiler errors you were facing? Um, no, no, I don't mind. I think I'll start by introducing myself. Um, sure. I'm, yeah, I'm very low on the, the social media today and also explain why I'm kind of like low and sure. go from there. Yeah. So um, for those I haven't met, uh, thanks everyone for joining the conversation today. Uh, my name is Ebo Tabi. I'm the founder and uh, CEO of Voyance. Um, a little bit background about myself. Before starting Voyance, I used to work at Andela as a principal engineer, um, where I kind of like had some opportunity to work for the likes of like Two Sigma, um, Crocs Informatics, like some of the Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies. Um, I'm a tech time founder, um, so I, I kind of like started two other companies, uh, one field, one was acquired, uh, more of like acquire hire. Um, yeah, so that's it. I mean, people might ask why Voyance today, what, uh, kind of like pushed us to, to build this, um, 
So back then at Two Sigma, uh, most of my work with some colleagues was basically building um, data tools or data solutions that will enable business uh, users or other stakeholders within um, uh, companies like Two Sigma Investment to crunch a petabyte scale of information. We're talking of hundreds of billions of rows of record. So we mostly had to build everything from ground up. Yeah, there are cases where we had to build solutions around Apache Spark. But when it comes to things like um, querying of data and uh, every other key thing, you know, we had to develop key solutions around, you know, in-memory layers and go from there. Um, and that kind of like extended into other areas where I kind of like had opportunity to work on. Um, there was this um, computer vision startup where I kind of like was uh, responsible to build the initial machine learning layer, which uh, basically converts um, 3D point cloud data into like tabular structure, then apply um, regular classification models in order to determine, you know, the quality of uh, construction happening within an area. So almost similar to like how um, you get in self-driving tech. So this was running through like a rover, uh, which will move around the building assistant construction and you will use uh, a combination of leader and uh, other sensors to kind of like pick up, um, you know, like telemetry data around that and it's converted behind the scene. So all this experience, one key thing um, that I kind of like really, really uh, noticed that was a massive challenge. It wasn't even around you know, like data collection, it's very easy if you have the right understanding to collect data, right? The biggest challenge with data is, is keeping consistency, the quality, and giving people, you know, quicker access. Like if you were working in an organization like, let's say, Doxa or Two Sigma, you realize like the amount of data people want to access, it's ridiculously high, right? And the speed at which people want to access that data it will blow up your mind. Like you'll find someone, an analyst will tell you, hey, um, we are looking at data that covers a certain portfolio for the last two months. You're looking at about four petabyte worth of data, right? And they will tell you we need to query that data in like under a second, right? Traditional storage engines like MySQL or Postgres will not satisfy that type of query. So most of the times, you kind of like have to go back to the drawing board and design a completely different, you know, approach when it comes to querying data, right? Like this uh, problem has kind of like given rise to, you know, challenges like uh, first access and people have started designing what you probably uh, see online. They call it vectorized query engines and even columnar store formats like Packet and um, others like Apache Iceberg, which enable data engineers to like store high volume of data in an extremely high compression ratio, right? So you could take like 17 terabyte and compress and store it's like one terabyte in an S3 bucket. Then you now use like a custom query engine that can split compute across multiple EC2 machines that each of those compute machines will access that S3 bucket and scan, you know, those files from different stages to, you know, like satisfy that query. So we kind of like experience this ourselves as data engineers and 
pretty much it kind of like, you know, pushed us to go out there to build, um, you know, a platform like Voyance, right? So Voyance, I would say we are kind of like in a three phase or three stages in terms of our roadmap, right? So first phase is integration, transformation, and sync. And second phase is building a native query engine, uh, similar to what I just explained. And the third phase is bringing in um, other tooling like machine learning, notebook, and data visualization. So our goal is to build a complete end-to-end um, data platform that will enable both uh, technical users and non-technical users to collaborate and drive key data processes um, within um, any given organization. So at the current stage where we are, we have um, we are fully into like uh, private beta in terms of our production release. So we have a couple of customers that are using that to run um, their complex data pipelines and uh, kind of like go from there. So our whole year, if anyone has a question or any feedback and you want some clarity, yeah, uh, I can take those questions before I continue and talk a little bit about data engineering from a business perspective. What is it? How to approach it? And why some businesses do struggle with data engineering? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think, yeah, we, we want to probably start like a bit meta, right? Like, the, like talking about what, I know like Voyant is a data engineering firm. I want to kind of go to start from like what data engineering is and, um, you know, why this is an important problem to solve. And then, you know, when we're done with that, then I want to talk a bit about um, something that has been a bit interesting for me because I haven't, you know, like dug deep into data engineering in general slash machine learning in general. Um, I think that, you know, I know about a bunch of data companies, you know, and the idea is, you know, you have like a lot of data coming in, you do some transform on that data and you maybe store it somewhere, use it for some analysis. So I've never really understood that. So I would ask you all the questions that I've been confused about today. Um, so that should be fun. But yeah, let's start from like what data engineering is um, and why like it is important. Okay, cool. Um, data engineering in a very pure and simple definition, right? Uh, basically, you say it's a practice of designing and building systems, right, that enable businesses to collect, store, and analyze data at scale, right, in a very uh, simple definition. So in this case, what is a data engineer's job, right? So basically, they design, manage, and optimize the flow of data across several sources into you know, the, uh, you could say destination. In this case, it could be data warehouse, it could be a file system. Basically, that's their day-to-day job, right? So they enable these organizations to, you know, design these very complex systems in terms of collecting data. Um, why is it important? You know, today we live in a world where every single second, you know, we generate data. It could be contextual, like pictures or text, or it could be based in like videos, several other formats, audio, it's, it's just that it keeps growing, right? And for today's businesses, 
just you know like you know say hey we want to make a decision and i'll go by god feeling it's extremely dangerous right so a lot of businesses today like when you look at the likes of you know amazon facebook they are heavily driven by data right for them to be able to make a decision and say okay for example for facebook we are going to target this type of demography one it is based on the type of content those users have been you know watching or uh, consuming basically and why they are consuming that data, they collect telemetry, like, okay, how long have you been watching a video? What type of video you're watching? And also using uh, techniques like natural language processing to understand, you know, like the type of comments you're leaving. And that is how they kind of like starts, you know, solving problems around hate speech or they can flag your content for like hate speech and all the like. So for a business, data sits at that central key point where they can make very valuable decision, right? I'll take a very um, close um, example, which we are very conversed with um, in, in Nigeria, which is uh, the FinTech space, right? Um, where can data show greater importance? Like let's take, for example, a very vivid example. So um, let's take a FinTech, right? Like Kuda Bank, right? Users consume ton of information um, within your platform, right? card payments, peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, that's users sending themselves funds, right? Um, receiving funds from different banks and all the like uh, that is happening within CUDA. Now, here's the key thing. When all of these transactions or processes occur, there is some form of, you know, metadata that is generated. Now, there can be a question, you know, around the issue of, let's say, um, fraud that normally happens and how we could have solved this fraud problem. They will have to go back into the data to look at how the whole incident happened, right? Who, you know, kind of like carry out the fraud, when did it happen, what type of device were they using, what was the account age? All of this sits within the data. With that information, CUDA can now build an entire system where they can start collecting that type of data and then go through the process of, you know, um, building some machine learning models that kind of like we enable them to identify patterns and then they can ship that model into production environment where they can apply it on live stream of inf uh, transactions that are happening and predict the probability of the next set of transactions bring further line or not, right? They can even extend this a little bit further and say, hey, we are not just going to use machine learning. We are going to use this data, you know, around the user and do what we call like enrichment, right? Enrichment is basically saying, hey, yeah, a couple of data around this user profile. I want to generate new set of information, right? So by enriching the data, I kind of like develop newer patterns or newer sets of information around that particular profile. Like for example, they can take my profile and say, hey, they want to look at my average transaction for the last two days or the last three hours or for the last five months, right? They want to look at my transaction velocity, which basically means like the time I created my account to the time I did my first transaction, how fast was that, right? They can look at it and say, okay, um, I want to look at, they kind of like want to look at like, let's say for example, average credit that gets into my account, like every time my account gets credited, what was that average for the last two days? and discover all these different patterns. They can plot it on a graph and see how, you know, all of this evolved, right? That is what data plays in that key central role, enabling them to see things that normally you would not just see it with, you know, just by, you know, going by the assumptions route, right? 
that data can be extended on a knowledge graph where they can build entity relationship between my account and any other account I send money into. This can play a key central role around solving things like money laundry, right? Or them being compliant in terms of like understanding who do I send money to? How often does money leave my account? Which accounts does it hit? And from those accounts, which other accounts are kind of like receiving funds, right? A knowledge graph will help you to solve that. So all of these kind of like seeds within, you know, the heavy application of, you know, data engineering, because you need to build the systems, right? And the process that kind of like transform that data along the line, because just collecting data without a strategy in terms of how we are going to kind of like convert, augment, or aggregate, transform that data, it's not really useful. So for every business that says, hey, we want to, you know, use data to be able to make sense or make decisions, there has to be a very clear process as to what do we want to achieve, what problem are we solving in this case, right? That will kind of like inform, you know, the whole data engineering process within, you know, that given business unit, right? Um, these things can get very complex, right? From the level of collecting, storing, analyzing that, right? Uh, it will require a couple of other techniques, storage environments, right? Like if we were to take a very simple um, example, like let's say we were to solve today um, an antimony laundry, We need to design how are we collecting that data, right? How fast does that data get generated? How do we store that data? How do we process it? What type of information we're going to extract in from that data? What are the applications we will need to run, right? Which other new features, like in the case in the machine learning uh, step, what are the new features we need to engineer? Which basically means we're generating new ones, right? And what are the ones we're going to drop which are not relevant for the problem we're solving, right? And all of this comes in together, it sits on the foundation of proper data engineering process. So without that, every other thing that comes after it, um, it's very open to get ton of errors and challenges as we go from there. So, yeah. Yeah, so something I'm kind of like interested in is, like I, I kind of want to know this. So, you know, you mentioned something like, um, so you give an example of Coda Bank, you know, maybe they want to do some fraud detection, then, you know, they want to query, um, you know, like how quickly are you doing transactions? How many transactions have you done in the last, you know, I don't know, X days? Mm -hmm. And maybe like form some inferences from that. So like, apart from the engineering aspect, this also sounds like you need to analyze like human behavior slash understand human behavior. Yep. So is that is that something that like Boyance does as well? Or is this like something the companies you build for, like do they do that? Like so, like at what point do you stop in this flow? So do you just help them, like provide a platform for them to, you know, ask these questions for themselves? Or do you also, you know, ask the questions and, and answer them? Okay, cool. Yeah, so um, the way the platform works uh, at this space, right? You can build that entire flow, right, from a data engineering standpoint, right? We don't yet offer um, data science uh, futures, right? Um, what we're doing is we're going chronologically, like, solve the foundation problem, which is having that ability to ingest and build this type of workflow transformations, right? 
So for example, um, using what you kind of like shared and say, okay, let's say this data was sitting in an S3 bucket and then there were some on, uh, let's say, in MySQL or Postgres database or even MongoDB, right? They want to kind of like combine these two different data sets, transform it, right? Let me use it this way. Let's say all cat transactions are stored, right? On a MongoDB server, right? And then um, the orders and payments they do with those card transactions are stored in an S3 bucket, right? There is a relationship between the customer ID, which is always stacked along the payments and the card usage, which goes into the S3 bucket, right? And then there is information still with that same unique identifier stored in MongoDB. Now, what we give them is that flexibility because it will take you a ton of time and effort to write, you know, all these quotes where you need to crunch, like in just, like say, let's assume there are about 10 million records on MongoDB, that's fairly small, right? But you need to spend time writing the quotes and testing against MongoDB, then you need to now write another integration to S3 and bring this data, right? Probably in S3, it's stored as packet, right? That which is like the favorite format which a lot of people use to store um, data in S3 buckets or probably your CSV. Now, the thing is, you're dealing now with two different data sets or data sources with completely different formats, right? How do you kind of like bring this together? We give you that flexibility, not just to integrate, but to transform. So you don't get to worry about those format issues, right? And building now your logic and say, okay, I want to filter out only transactions or users that have done transactions above 100,000 Naira for the last three days, and they've done that transaction, like what you probably say, transaction frequency, they've done that at least three times. And then you want to now write that into, let's say, Redshift cluster, right? So now you're dealing with three different data, so, um, data uh, environments where you have an S3 bucket, you have a MongoDB, and your data warehouse is on S3, right? I'm sorry, on um, Redshift. It could be BigQuery, for example, as well. So all of this complexity, that is just the beginning. Now, here's where things get very interesting. You probably have spent the last one, two months writing all of this script. It works great on your laptop. How do you take it into production environment where it will not just support, you know, like lightweight jobs, but it can scale on demand. It means you can now run ton of this transformation on way more larger data sets. Let's say you, when you were developing this, they gave you a few five to 10 million rows. And they tell you when it gets to production, you'll be dealing with hundreds of million. Hundreds of million rows of record is completely different from working with five to 10 million on your you know, personal machine because then this is like a continuous process. So you want to keep that environment um, up and running, right? It means you need to be able to spin some new machines on demand as workload grows up. That brings you into now building a lot of reliability tools that will allow you to monitor how the existing workload is happening and then automatically provision new set of you know ec2 machines now that basically changes your entire timeline right let's say your manager gets you and say hey we need this up and running in two months and that section where you needed to manage infrastructure was never exposed to you you now realize like hey we've deployed on an ec2 machine and they tell you, like hey the thing is breaking how do you know when it breaks how do you know when let's say db connectivity is you know, it's out. How do you know when there's so much workload I need to spin in your machine, right? So those are some of the challenges that comes when you're building this type of complex solutions. 
And what we've done at Buoyancy is we've built this from ground up. So it means I can choose and say, hey, I'm starting a cluster and I'm going to put it on auto-scaling mode. I'll start with 10 machines, but if this cluster experiences like workload, it should add 100, 200, 300 more machines to meet up with the workload. And then when it's done, it's the auto shutdown, right? To build that, it sounds simple from the front end, but there's a lot that goes in behind the scene. Like your telemetry has to collect workload on the CPU, the, the, the memory, the actual processes themselves are generating also telemetry. And you're combining all of these with some machine learning techniques inside to predict workload on the environment and provision that you know uh, additional machines and keep an eye when that workload drops and then you terminate them. So we not just give you that tool to run or design uh, you know like the complex transformation, but we also do the infrastructure part. So you don't worry about how do you take my entire pipeline to production, right? We you know it's all done behind the scene in an automated fashion. So you just focus on designing and deploying and every other thing is uh, taken care of. Um, sounds good. So something I actually wanted to ask about was this auto-scaling auto thing, right? So you mentioned that, you know, if the workload for, you know, the machi machines that are currently up is, you know, getting to maybe a threshold, then you add a couple of N machines or something. So how do you kind of handle because the reason why a you know like a server could be experiencing workloads um or could be like responding slowly could be for different reasons right yeah there's some there's some times that it can be slow because there is a problem that's kind of cascading and all the servers are kind of getting blocked by this one issue yeah and so if you added if you added more servers they would just it should just be more servers experiencing the same things. Yeah. So how do you how do you kind of differentiate between, you know, scaling up because, you know, this is like a legitimate need to process more data versus, you know, scaling up when there is like an error happening and this is just going to cause a bigger problem. Okay. Um. So this comes to yeah, good, very good question, right? This is where telemetry system plays a key role, right? Um, you see toolings like Datadog and the likes, right? They help you to understand how not just your application is running, but the environment in which that application is running, right? So we went with similar approach, right? There wasn't any open source tool. Datadog wouldn't have worked in our use case because um, we can like directly couple Datadog into our business logics, right? In terms of understanding how the processing is working. So let me use your example. Let's say we are running a five node cluster, right? One master with four workers. And then um, you design a pipeline and say, okay, I'm going to pull data on payments from Postgres and um, the transaction themselves, they are MongoDB. I'm going to merge that and look for only um, transactions that the users, they've kind of like repeated transactions at least twice for the last five days and filter out only transactions where it has been shipped to these users and then um, write that into, let's say, BigQuery, for example. That's a very um, common use case in the e-commerce space, right? Now, let's assume we kind of like ship this into a cluster environment. What happens then? You know, like what goes into that entire process, right? Let's play the scenario here. You click the first time, everything is running smoothly, and all of a sudden, you just realize like when data is ingested, 
he hangs, he doesn't get transformed, right? Now, what we do internally to ensure that, you know, if something is happening, right, uh, we can escalate, right? So several approaches we do it. One, right, we have what we call telemetry agents. These agents are very lightweight, ROS-based um, uh, tooling that lives within each, you know, machine you deploy, right? Very lightweight, less than 5 MB, and they use less than 1% of, you know, memory. Maximum memory usage should be around that 20 to 30 uh, MB, right? Very small. But what they do is they collect every single information. Let's say, for example, um, on the pipeline, you have to ingest data. So before that ingestion starts, right, there are tons of information we're collecting around, let's say, for example, um, the database that we need to collect from, right? What is a database engine like? Is it MySQL? Has this process ever collected data from what was the duration, right? So we have some sort of like reference point. We collect that data, you know, at that stage, we check, okay, trigger now the ingestion process. How long does ingestion take? We compare it versus the last one. So we can provide you this type of telemetry in the future if you want to understand how uh, fast your ingestion is running. So if ingestion fails, we will know why it failed, right? Okay, it timeout, it means there's a connectivity problem we can raise an alert, send you an email that, hey, um, this database connection is not going through. So we automatically post the entire pipeline and we know that is not a problem on, let's say there is so much workload happening and we need additional server, right? So where we kind of like trigger things like additional machines is let's say for example, ingestion works very well, right? The first time we look at total number of records that were ingested. Oh, this time we pull about 10 million. The next time is 100, right? We keep comparing the size of the data, the duration it takes to process, right? And alongside that, we're looking at, you know, like the CPU usage, the amount of memory you're using, and at about 65%, we trigger that, right? If the process is still live and running because we have several states in which a given process must occur, right? For example, um, when you initiate, there's an initiation stage, there is a pending state, like that particular tax is pending for a job, right? And if that job is running or if it sticks in pending, what are the different things that can happen in pending? Pending in the case, like let's say, for example, the previous node has not finished executing, so this other one is pending. But if it stays way longer than, you know, like based on the previous calculation, let's say that ingestion of 10 million records previously took about a minute, and now it's about five minutes, we trigger, right? So if it goes above a certain threshold, we trigger an alert immediately. But for us, internally, at Foyance, we can check on that. And if not, we also, like, send you that notification. So there are several things that happen that we want to ensure that we have an idea of what is really happening, right? Um, I will tell you for sure, we are not covering everything 100% because we keep discovering new things and we keep adding that as part of our playbook when it comes to monitoring this process. So we borrow a couple of techniques on how, you know, you monitor a file system for like five changes or because we also look at the logs that are being generated, we need to read from the logs. So ton of other things uh, we do on that environment, right? And then we now shift um, to the master node and say, hey, this task is done, right? So you can notify the next stage on the DAG that you need to kick off the next one. And that master node has every single metadata around how long it took to run that. Um, the, this thing uh, kind of like retry more than once, right? It means like, okay, the process failed. 
So we'll now have to flag that internally to go review, like, okay, we have all this process that, you know, like for ingestion or let's say transmission where you're kind of like filtering out for this uh, pipeline, the transmission had to replay twice. So we go and look at that telemetry and understand why it had to play twice. Maybe in this case, it's a memory issue. Then we can, you know, account for that edge case and reship back, you know, the telemetry agent to account for that. And this happens uh, what we call uh, off the air type of update. So uh, you don't need to rerun your cluster or destroy that and deploy a new one to get that update. So the agent can pull new updates from you know our remote server and take back those new information into account and go from there. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I, I, I mean, a lot of questions are kind of running through my head right now. I'm going to hold on to the of the air updates. That sounds like something interesting to talk about. But the immediate question I have right now is, so it sounds like the telemetry agent is really important. It also sounds like the master node here is really important. And you know, one sort of edge case I'm thinking about now is telemetry is collecting like a lot of data from the server that it's running on. It is possible you know, that maybe the telemetry agent itself is the cause of the problem. So maybe the telemetry agent is like leaking, leaking memory or something, right? Mm -hmm. And because of leaking memory is using all of like the memory on the, um, on, on the server and the server doesn't have like enough memory to even like process what it needs to process. So how do you get reported on that kind of issue? Cause I'm assuming it's the telemetry agent that needs to report that problem outside of the server. But if the agent is the one with the problem, then that's kind of an edge case. I'm, I'm wondering how, how, how would you like find out? Yeah, so very good question. Um, one of the key reasons why we use Rust versus tools like Golang, or, it's not that like Golang is bad. I think we settle with two options, right? To build our telemetry agent was either Golang or Rust. Right, um, Golang has its pros and cons, same like Rust. So, I think one of the languages we definitely we are we are proficient in, but we like just all have that mindset like we are not going to touch this. It was C and C plus plus, even though they were the, like the best candidates to build that. So we were left with the option like, hey, um, we need to build this thing in Rust or Golang. So we prototype building Golang and Rust, then we even had the initial version in Java, which I think the Java was using close to like 60 MB in memory. And for us, that was already like a big concern because this thing has to have an extremely small memory footprint, right? In high, let's say um, high traffic scenario, it should use maximum 20 MB in memory. It means it's pushing about 1 billion records in terms of telemetry data every day, that should be the maximum thing. That is uh, what we were interested in. And to build that type of high-performance telemetry engine, you, you, you're probably looking at, you know, C, C++ type of low-level programming, right? Because here you're monitoring not just, you know, your existing application logic, you're also monitoring the server machine where that application logic is running on, and for us, Ross seems to be, you know, like the better candidate, right? No garbage collector. Please, no offense to, you know, garbage collector tooling like Golang and Java. We are heavy users of those tools. 
is just for the use case for us, we were looking at being able to write like close to the C type of performance at the same time have very safe code, even though we cannot as well kind of like declare on safe blocks that will even give us extra performance in terms of uh, what we are trying to achieve. So to solve the problem you're, you're kind of like pointing out, right? Um, it's a very rare scenario to have, you know, ROS-based application leak memory, right? Like the good thing is at compile time, ROS, you know, compiler would kind of like, you know, raise concerns and not even compile your codes. If you have, you know, you're writing very unsafe codes where you can probably have things like um, memory leaks, right? That is, I think, one of the key validators for us to go with ROS because we were to push this type of information and memory leaks were number one concern. So which language are we going to use where we can avoid, you know, those uh memory leaks or buffer flow issues and yeah we we settle on rust though we have some minor c plus uh c codes that are kind of like attached to that right that uh we we've up to, to enable us optimize um the the rust application but um at that stage we haven't experienced yet maybe when we start seeing way more larger telemetry uh, in the hundreds of billions. But right now we're still at super early stage. So we will not, uh, we've not yet experienced that type of issues. But yeah, we are pretty much aware that can happen very much. So we are looking at, you know, solving that problem when it arises. But yeah, so far we've not. So it's still safe for us. Cool. I mean, yeah, like a, a lot of people talk about Rust and how Rust is safe. Um, this is not something I've actually dug too much into because um, I've not I've not had to. But yeah, like it sounds sounds like an interesting um, thing I, I have to look into soon. Um, but yeah, thanks thanks for explaining that. I want to. Um, so the other question I had was, you know, you said that you know sometimes, you know, you find there's an issue on the on the cluster or on the server. And it's possible for you to send off the air updates. So which means that you don't have to like restart, you know, the service within the cluster or something. So I want to kind of understand that a bit more, maybe with an example, right? So, okay. you know, how was an example of an issue you had that you needed to fix and was kind of fixed in this way? Like how, how did that work? Like in technical terms? Okay. So um, let's use a very, um, uh, simple example, uh, let's say we need to continuously monitor, let's say, disk storage or disk space that is left as, you know, the log files are generated. And we discover that the previous command was not giving us like granular information, right? Um, now, we have developed a new approach, right, to collect that information and ship back. So here's what would, would likely happen. We have what we'll call an update server, right? This update server runs behind a firewall, which is like uh, based on Apache Tribe, right? So no HTTP. So we've added a couple of secure layer like for authentication and uh, put that behind the firewall. So when we push an update, uh, let's say you, we write that and we push, we use uh, GitLab, by the way, um, uh, in Foyan. So when we push, and the code gets uh, reviewed and merged on GitLab. What then happens is um, for this implementation, right, we do the build 
and we release it into that particular environment. So let's say in this uh, case, let's just use S3 for better example, but we have like our own proprietary like setup similar to like uh, the way S3 will work in this case, right? So we move that binary. The binary is a very small patch. It's not something massive. So that binary is sitting on S3. So what then now happen is we can send trigger to all the clusters on a particular version. Let's say we're targeting versions that were created like us, uh, clusters that were created like say a month ago, right? Um, we, can, we have that uh, data about like, the clusters that have been created, what type of version of the tooling they are running. So we can target those specific versions and say, okay, yeah, the versions, we want to push this update to, right? So what we now do is it's more of like event driven. So we trigger an event we don't actually push, you know, the code update themselves. We just trigger an event to inform the agent, right? That, hey, there is update about this, you know, piece of line of code. We want you to download it. So what then now happen is um, the service that is running on those is two instance, we spin a thread when it receives that communication through tribe. So it's more of like tribe. Over HTTP for us, it's more of like, because you know it's binary, it's faster than HTTP and we can build our own level of security without, you know, like over, you know, a lot of effort to get that up and running and the service can stay very, very small. So when that, you know, notification gets to the agent, the agent has every information or metadata you say, he knows where that update is seated and um, it needs to download, right? So we have a list, right, of all these servers that we need to update. So when um, the agent kind of like downloads that, right, what it then does is it notifies, you know, the other section or you could say the telemetry engineer, hey, I've pulled this update and it will restart itself, right? So here's a good thing is that we don't run one instance of that agent, right? Based on the number of CPU cores, right? It will kind of like restart each instance so that we make sure at every given point in time, we have at least an instance of that, you know, tooling running such that, you know, the agent or that whole system should not go down completely. It means one, we are losing telemetry about that server, which is critical. So we have like restart instance by instance so that by the time we're on the last instance, at least the first two are already up and running and they can uh, keep pushing, you know, telemetry back to the telemetry server. Why these ones uh, are also doing the patch update. So when they are done, they will fire in uh, the notification back to the telemetry server that, hey, we have updated ourselves, so we are good to go. Okay, that's, that sounds interesting. So it sounds like what you're saying is the process is write code to GitLab, GitLab builds that, deploys it, and then that triggers, um, that notifies the agents running a particular version that, you know, there is a newer version to run, and those agents are run in, um, they are run redundantly, so there are multiple instances of the agents, and so the updates happen, one agent will be one um, is the instance at a time, so an agent is always up, essentially, right? Yeah, essentially, yeah. All right.
Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, that sounds really cool. Um, and I think it could be helpful to people to like, I mean, I guess learn how to update in general. So I'm um, back to data engineering, right? So we kind of veered off a bit. No worries. It's still um, about the data engineering, building the tooling behind. Yeah. So um, I want to like, I want you to kind of walk through what the high level steps are for, so when you say you want to you know, perform like data engineering, on for like for like a company like what are the high level steps like in my mind i've kind of read some stuff about data engineering so i know mm -hmm. that usually a lot of data engineers use like etl so extract transform load so in my mind that's kind of when i think about data engineering that's those are the high level things i think about i want to kind of dig into like what each step actually means right so yeah. for example for example you said you know you ingest data and you ingest data from multiple sources I find this very yeah. interesting. So are there, do you only like support some sources or do you support like, I mean, every single source known to mine? Like how do you kind of <laughs> do that? And, yeah. you know, when you say like you ingest from multiple sources for a company, you also kind of need to, you know, merge that into something, like develop some objects that they can query against. Because if you're yeah. storing that in some, you know, additional storage somewhere, maybe like BigQuery, um, it needs to be it needs to be represented in, as another object. So how do you kind of, you know, take objects from multiple data sources, and how do yeah. you decide what unified object to create, and mm -hmm. then like decide how to store it, store it? So the first question here is there are multiple questions. The first one is, you know, how do you ingest right? Like, um, yeah. and how do you support like different different sources of data? Yeah. So um. I think data engineering itself, I'm not sure ETLs will be going anywhere anytime soon. It's part and parcel of the process, right? There's always going to be extraction before anything. But I think what, what normally goes into the very first process before you even start a data engineering project, process, or whichever way you want to define it, there has to be some form of goal, right? That kind of like represents the business side of things. Right, um, because if there is none, there is no way you can you can qualify or quantify that data engineering process of being successful. It has to achieve a goal. It has to solve a problem. Now that problem can be breaking down into smaller bits where you can look at okay, where are we pulling data from? What type of transformation do we need to do? What type of aggregation, augmentation, filtering, or generating like a completely new set of you know columns or futures for my data science people. So let's let's kind of like take it step by step. In ex before we hit extraction, let's use a very simple scenario here. We are not, we work for an e-commerce business, right? Every day they want to have data that they can use to target specific customers for like you know recommendation of products or some new campaigns in terms of discounts and all the like. And for them or for this department that is responsible to engage these customers, their key profile is saying, hey, we need people who have done at least 10 purchases for the first three days of the week, right? So now we are defining the problem and what success looks like. And we need these people to have spent at least 50,000 Naira within those first three days. So it's now getting a little bit more clearer. So we have this all dropped out 
And then the next idea question is, where do we have data that represents this problem we've kind of like defined? Oh, the data is seated in Postgres. We have some in MongoDB or Cassandra because you know uh, you want to do a high level of write. Then we have some in S3. That is our data. Those, those are our data sources, right? Those is where we'll be extracting data from. So we now move into the extraction phase, right? To answer part of your question, yes, Boyans, we support multiple data connectors. We try as much as possible to release every quarter like 10 to um, 10 to 30 additional data sources. So like uh, for this uh, Q3, we're releasing about 30 more that will cover things like Fireboard, Snowflake, DB2 from IBM, Oracle, uh, Mixpanel, DocumentDB, and a couple of others. So about 30 new data sources are coming in. So when you kind of like define that, you know where that data is stored, the question you want to ask yourself is, what is the data structure like for these different data sets, right? So like the columns, their data types, does it cover and represent so um, what we are trying to solve? You need to have this, you know, like clear up from the very beginning because you don't want to find yourself ingesting data that does not cover your problem domain, right? So this is normally where data engineers spend way more time because it's a very intensive process. They want to ensure that, hey, this covers exactly what maybe bio is uh, the head of department and he needs to run that report or that insight with marketers. And you realize like, hey, the data the engineering team gave us does not cover that. You go back to the drawing board, ask them like, hey, I need data that covers here's a specification, all these columns with your data type, where is it seated? for this type, uh, for all transactions, uh, for this type of customers. They will give you, you now build that entire flow. So you now jump into, let's say our platform and say, okay, I'm going to connect this MongoDB, this S3 bucket, and this Postgres database that covers that entire process. So what we do is we don't ingest data at that point. We bring in the schema, right, of those different environments and store them on our metadata repository. So you can now go in and look at, okay, I connected this Postgres database. Does it include all these columns for these tables? As we define, if yes, you can now go in and start building that entire flow and say, okay, I'm going to bring in data from this table under this database. I can click and get a sample, right? A sample will be displayed to you where you see, oh, okay, the data is fine or something is missing. I can go back and resync, right, the schema again. Maybe um, the, that was the wrong table or the wrong database. You can disconnect, reconnect super fast. You don't need to write any code, right? When you now have that entire process defined, you now do your whole extraction. Phase. Extraction is just basically another term for data ingestion, right? Now, what now differs in this whole extraction phase is, are you building a pipeline for like continuous pooling? It means, let's say, for example, I'll pull 10,000 records now. When I want to pull again, I'm not going to start from afresh. I'll pull from 10,001 to about 20,000, right? So you're more of like doing some form of replication in this case, right? So you can build or design an extraction process to work that way. Or if your problem requires you to recompute everything from scratch, you can design it to work that way, right? So when you're done with that extraction phase, you then now are moving to your transformation phase, which transformation here is um, a group term or some sort of cloud word where within transformation, you can have things like aggregation, 
dropping unwanted columns, right? Um, cleaning data, like the cleaning process could be um, imputing for like missing values, right? Or um, if missing values are, if you have missing values, how do you impute those? Like you could say, hey, use the standard deviation or the mode or the median, whatever that is based on your, you know, internal analysis. And this has to be defined at the beginning of the project, not when you are now in transformation, right? So the process of data engineering is a very challenging one. It, you know, the scope is quite large and a lot of times people just make it look like it's a very simple process, but it's not. So I will leave you to ask any question before we move into properly into transformation. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, so question I had about ingestion. Um, so let's say, I have two questions. The first is, let's say you define like a schema, like this is the schema you want to ingest. Like what happens if along the way you need to change the schema, right? Like does, how do you kind of adjust your ingestion process? And I also kind of want to clarify what schema here means. So you have mm -hmm. like a, you have a Postgres DB, Mm -hmm. the, table, the table has a schema. Are you just saying that you just say, oh, this is the table you want to extract. The table schema is what I'm ingesting. That is it. Or are you saying that your ingestion process has a separate schema and that schema, you're ingesting data based on your, the schema you have defined, not based on the schema that you find in the table? Okay, cool question. Um, so the schema, right, just like the term schema, the schema you're talking about, like the table with its respective columns and their data types, right? Like what type of data which each of those columns holds, right? That is pretty much what we ingest when you connect a particular data source or database, like in this case, the Postgres one, right? So if your particular database on that Postgres has three tables, who replicate that three tables and their respective columns and your data type, right? So in your question where you said, um, what if things changes, like let's say you add a new column, right? Um, this definitely you have to be very much aware of these changes, you yourself as a data engineer, right? What we do is we make it easier for you to resync, right? Like you could go into that particular connectivity and say, hey, I want to sync to update the schema on the platform because I've changed or modified or added new columns at um, the DB layer at our end and I will need those columns to reflect on uh, the platform. So you click it does the sync and brings in those new changes, right? So you don't need to do any intensive work, but here's where the cache is. Just like if let's say you had um, written this in like Scala, Java, or whatever code, Python, Ruby, it will require you to go to every single area where you need that column to be added and add them manually, right? For, for us, it's just go to those steps and say, hey, yeah, the new columns, um, I want to select them. And most of the cases, just like it's a drop down, you can filter by searching the column name and then you click, that's just it, right? You don't need to do any heavy programming to get those up and running. So that is a flexibility we kind of like try to always uh, have available for data engineers. Cool. And something you said before extraction is needing to define a goal but then when you spoke about goals, you said something, like you gave examples like, you know, I want to know how many customers have um, maybe like purchased 
X amount of goods in the first three days of the week, something like that. So yeah. that that's those sound very specific. Like it sounds like you know these people almost know what they want. So what happens when you know you have an idea of something? So for example, I'm an airline, and mm-hmm. I know that my um, my manufacturing process is inefficient. I I know it. Mm-hmm. I just I don't know anything about. The specifics. I don't know what I want to find out. I just know I want to make it more efficient. Mm-hmm. So what hap- what happens in that kind of situation, right? Like, how would you approach that? Like, I don't know that I want to, like, I I want you to help me count how many goods that um how many raw materials I buy. I want you to tell me like how much I'm spending um building like a plane, all of that. I just know mm-hmm. that my my process is inefficient. So how do you approach that? You know, when stuff is ambiguous, like the what I want to find out is ambiguous. Okay, so in cases where you have a lot of ambiguity, right, in terms of your problem definition, um, the best way to go about it is to start very small, right? Um, When you talk about that in an airline, it's basically supply chain optimization. But the thing is, you want to go deep, you want to spend more time doing some sort of like discovery process, right? Like, yes, you talk about you want to optimize your entire operation, but what exactly in the operation do you think it's not optimized, right? If you don't ask those hard questions, I can guarantee you that project will never flat, right? Budget will be spent, people will be sent for training abroad, and that project will still be sitting there, won't go into production because things will always change, right? Like the use case is changing, the data is not conforming, and you're not going anywhere. So I think um, from personal experience, there has to be, some conversations, at least one or twice, right, where you sit down and you define what problem we're solving. Even if the CEO or CFO or chief operating officer says, hey, we have to optimize our entire operation from sales, marketing, product development, people have to still ask that question. Do we have data that represents that problem? What problem exactly are we solving and how do we intend to solve that problem? And what does it mean success for this at the end of the day, right? In your case, you're talking of optimizing maybe for revenue or optimizing for customer success or experience. It means like, okay, if a customer has an issue, right, about their ticket, we want you to resolve that in an instant, right? Like, let's say we can set a benchmark and say, okay, if a customer sends in a query about their ticket they want to change or there's an issue with their ticket, we want you to give them feedback on that 15 minutes. So it means the moment that thing, the query or the ticket, the race hits your system, there are several different things that needs to trigger for it to happen on that 15 minutes, right? It means you need to have a real-time streaming layer where that information will be collected, passed through tons of other processing and the trigger is sent to the right person and that human factor that comes in needs to be aware that yes, our process, we need to be able to meet customer demand on that 15 minutes. So it has to be part of the process, right? So I think one of the key things where we've seen data projects fail, it fails because of the human factor, right? That is where you see a lot of single point of failure because the human factor that is in there gets in with the old anyhowness mindset or mentality and things just blow out of proportion and it doesn't get off the ground, and that's how things uh, get slowed or projects don't go live. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so it sounds like 
there is some discovery possible, like a discovery process possible to, you know, maybe yeah. like find out what can be relevant. Yeah. But then it's still important to have like defined goals before yeah. you have yeah, a successful before you, before you kick in, yeah. Because cool. the thing is, even, even though you have that problem defined, you want to also have like, here's a problem and here's what it means to have a success, you know, for the project or for what we're trying to solve. What does it look like? So if we take that, so e-commerce project, right? Um, the goal for, for that would be, hey, it means if we log into our Tableau dashboard or Power BI, we can consume this refined data that shows us like, okay, for the last three days, every now and then, yeah, the users that have spent that 50,000 Naira and they've done at least 10 transactions for those three days. That is success for them. That is what they want to see at the end of the day. So you'll be working towards that goal to achieve those key metrics, right? So that is kind of like the idea behind it. Yeah, thank you. That was good. Um, so the next the next step was transformation. So we can go deep yeah. into that. Okay. Now, transformation, this is where a lot of, you know, like, uh, most of the times you get like the computing intense uh, activity do happen, right? Because here, yeah, uh, transformation could be reading even more data, right? Let's say um, we are solving an anti-money laundry case here, right? Or we're building a pipeline to build like dashboard for anti-money laundry for a bank. Um, we read all these users' transactions and uh, other payment uh, details and merge that, like let's say our first phase, we're doing a joint transformation. When it merges that data set, it creates a completely new one, right? In this case now, let's say we're looking at all users that have done only transactions above 100,000 Naira for the last two hours, right? That is part transformation. Now, within that transformation, we want to now look at, has these users where they've done this 100,000 have been flagged for, let's say, by the credit bureau or Interpol checklist, right? Now, this transformation could be reading from an external source, right? Like let's say um, a third party provider gives you API where that transformation node has to read from outside, right? And then augment that data and say, okay, for this user that we have about hundred of them, there are no um, standing warrant or from an Interpol checklist, so it's fine. I can confirm that the transformation is done, notifies, um, the master service that, hey, it's done transforming. The next phase is uh, we want to look at uh, com compute, let's say, average um, account balance, right? Um, here you can plug into, let's say, a tool like Okra or Mono, right? And behind the scene, this is assuming if um, like they have like server-to-server -server type of integration where you can pull those profiles, but I don't believe Mono or Okra provides that for uh, standard uh, privacy reasons, right? You can't just access people's data without um, express authorizations on those users, but this is just um, an example scenario that that could be possible, right? That also transformation can read um, those particular um, data points and augment the data. And then the last stage node could be writing that into um, the data warehouse environment. So transformation could be basically anything it could be like you're augmenting data, you're either filtering or dropping some columns or creating new columns from doing calculated fields. Calculated fields just basically say, hey, let's say I have a column and I'm computing our margins. Our margins are 30%. So that calculated field can be called our margins, right? 
So it will be now the amount multiplied by 30%. You're getting 30% of the amount. The new column, which is now called our margin, is 30% of the amount field. So that is like you've just created a new field based on a calculated one, right? And go from there. So that is what transformation does. But now here's where it gets tricky, right? If you were given, let's say, 1 billion rows of record, that transformation could take forever, weeks or even possibly a month or two. Now, this is where an infrastructure that kind of like does the auto-scaling works in key places that you have one billion record, it won't all be shipped to one node until, okay, for each record on that one billion list, process one node. So what the tool does is it kind of like generates a tag and say, hey, we have 20 workers. You will read from this number to this number, right? And process, when you're done, you, you let me know, I will schedule another job. So there's an internal scheduler that will schedule all those different transformation, all steps, right? And different layers and push that to those workers and they'll process and put that in a cache. So we have an intermediary cache, uh, which is based on um, Apache, uh, that's Aluxio. Aluxio is, um, it's almost like Redis, but mostly around five systems. So um, if anyone wants to look uh, what Aluxio is, I think I'll probably just tweet it now. So if you um, look at my Twitter timeline, you probably see that as my latest tweet. So you can check out Aluxio. So it's very good when you're doing like large scale data processing and you want to cache like intermediary data and use that for transformation. So the likes of Tencent, Samsung, uh, Barclays Bank, Baidu, Lenovo are all using that to, you know, even Alibaba Cloud also uses that. It's very key essential for like fast data access uh, when you're processing like terabyte or petabyte scale of information. So um, you can cache that data so that you don't go back to disk. So one of the key thing why we use intermediary caches Data is very, it's very expensive to read from disk, right? So when we read once from disk, it stays on cache from end to end. So from the time um, we, we read, all of that stays on cache. So it could be 1 billion row, 10 billion row, 1 petabyte, all stays on cache. And it gets transformed, augmented, it stays, stays on cache. So it's very tricky because if you're not careful, um, you can lose data. So the best way to go around this is to use um, a columnar compressed format like Packet. So Packet is our standard um, uh, data format we use in serializing and skipping data on, on, on cache so that we can always reaccess faster and read that. So yeah, that's uh, transformation. Cool. Um... So like what, it sounds like transformation could have, you know, like a lot of steps, um, like that make it up, like that make up the transformation process. Yeah. So, I mean, what's one maybe like transformation experience that you have like, you know, um, done or gone through as well that has made you like rethink how transformation is done, right? So, um, I mean, this could be anything, right? So. Was there anything you needed to write like a transformer for? And this transformer was like super complex and you needed to just rethink how the whole thing works. Yeah, so um, we, we had this uh, transformer. When we released the, like, the very first version of the platform, 
uh, we had this transformation that um, was extremely slow. You know, when we tested the first one, it was on like 10 million record. 10 million record is very small, right? When, you, when you're looking at in terms of data engineering, when you start having bottleneck here in that uh, at least half a billion record, we can, you can, with Scala, you can write a pretty command line tool that can sort through a hundred million records in Scala in under a minute or less even, right? Uh, when you're that close to like half a billion upward to like a billion, uh, that is where things start getting interesting. So we have this uh, uh, very first customer we started working with and they gave us a very small data set like, hey, we want to do some POC, like proof of concept to see how this will fit into our data stack. And when we ran that, it was super fast. I was even doing that on my laptop, like, oh, this is cool and stuff. But here's the thing we never accounted for, <laughs> the size of data that we use in production. So that already kind of like went under scope. And the thing is, um, based on the tooling, we use Spark internally for like resource allocation, like in terms of the different workers. And it got to a point we had to manage a transformation. This transformation had to do with date time where we were doing an aggregation then grouping by particular uh, like bucket of like monthly period. So the monthly ones were working well, but when we went granular where the data set is way, you know, like larger, um, first thing we got was memory issues, right? Like the JVM will run out of memory because Spark, if you use Spark to do intermediary cache, Spark will use a JVM uh, memory allocated to it. So we're like, okay, we're going to tune JVM, but to what extent you can tune JVM, right? You're talking now here, these people are looking through 3 billion records. You cannot sit on JVM. So first thing first, we're like, okay, we're going to change the way the transformation works, right? We're going to move it around, like behave the way like a query engine work. I don't know, for people who haven't done work on query engines, when you write a query statement, let's say, for example, say select um, average amount and uh, say you add um, monthly period, right? Like you want to group by month and then you're like, okay, from let's say sales table and uh, group by let's say the month now and say you're limiting the record to like 10 million, right? What happened is um, that query gets passed, right? And then you have like several stages where you have like the logical plan, uh, the physical plan optimization, then you have now projection. Projection is where you start reading data. So we went to the straight to the drawing board like, hey, we're going to build our own query parser, right? Our own uh, approach to query, uh, optimize that and add that to Spark and so that we can do the aggregation the opposite way. That was a total failure. That was like two weeks of sweat and blood, 18 hours of writing code, building your own native query layer, and it didn't fly. Like to put context to that, it failed exactly at five million records. So it means that was not even working as compared to like Spark itself, even though it had a ton of optimization. So we had to pay closer attention to memory issues. Like JVM can mess you up when it comes to like this whole uh, keeping data in memory. So we're like, okay, we're going to use Redis. But here's a funny thing. Everything in Redis was realized into strings, right? So the data structure using Redis, like no matter how you optimize it, the moment you hit Redis, you have now like your floating points become string. And it means when you're doing the aggregation, it all fails. We're like, okay, we're going to switch away from Redis and use Apache Ignite. 
and Ignite as well, Phil. Ignite was quite funny because it took columns. Let's say uh, you had camel case columns on someone's table or with underscore, it will all make them upper cases. So the column you were aggregating, all of a sudden, from the intermediary cache layer, it was no longer existing. That whole transformation fails, right? So we later on settled to rebuild you know, our entire query processor on the runtime engine, purely on Java, and use now Alexio as that cache, then the data itself was, uh, rather than either CSV or whatever it is, we went straight to Apache Packet and that kind of like solved that bottleneck. And since then we've not had any issue. We've moved billions of rows of record without breaking a sweat. Even on a small cluster of let's say three node made up of like a 40 gigabyte of RAM, we can move more than a billion record and that cluster will run perfectly fine with about say 10 to 15% in memory usage. Right. I mean, that sounds really cool. Can you like, please go over like the overview again. So you want to extract data, um, like, sorry, you want to transform data. So all of these things you have said now, how do they kind of fit into one big picture? Yeah, so how, how they fit into one kind of big picture, right? Um, if we take it back and say, hey, we want to solve the problem for a business that wants to retarget your customers that are spending on a weekly basis, right? First thing, you have a clear definition of the problem, domain, where did I sit at that covers that problem domain, right? And what success looks like, then you start with the initial phase, extracting and validating data. So that is like data exploratory phase where you want to ensure that the data now that you're connected to from the respective data sources is basically, you know, covering as defined on your exploratory documents, right? Like, hey, if it's five columns on that table, it should be five columns exactly with the same data structure and it covers that, right? So when you kind of like confirm your exploratory process, you can start building your whole, you know, different transformation logic to meet with that, you know, what it means success or goal. And the last phase is you want to answer is where do we store data at the end of the day? And how are we going to be consuming that data, right? So that is also part of your initial phase where you define because you define that or you establish that you know, whole data warehousing based on who will be accessing the data and how will they be accessing, right? Um, for the technical guys, you'll be, okay, we are cool. We can write our own queries on Redshift or on uh, BigQuery. We can extract that and put on CSV, put on an Excel sheet or Google sheet. We can play with that, right? But for the non-technical users, they can sit and start figuring out, oh, how do I write query? How do I do join? What's even a join? What do you mean by a join? Right. Oh, I want to just consume a nice Tableau dashboard. So you have all of these like clearly defined and you build that entire pipeline. It writes into, let's say, Redshift or Postgres. Then you connect Metabase or Tableau, you build that entire dashboard. And you can do what they call a dry run. A dry run basically means now that I have all of this thing, you know, set up, let me try to go end to end. Here is a problem. Here's where the data, here's what the data looks like. Here's what success looks like. Okay, I'm going to click the button to run. This is what I'm expected to see for this entire transformation. It runs, it writes, I can go into the database and look, oh, data is there. I can go now into Tableau or Metabase and refresh. It reads, it 
drives my query into that data warehouse or database that will written uh, transform data into and I get my results. When that is okay, that is when now you now do what you orchestrate by uh, probably say, okay, I want to run this on the daily basis at 4 p.m. You can use the job future and say, okay, you run this pipeline on this cluster every day at 4 p.m. and boom, you launch that. And that is up and running. So that job future is basically what you do with what they call airflow, like it enables you to orchestrate. Uh, I've seen people complain about airflow becoming way complex with all the DAGs. Like some people say it has a very high learning curve. So we basically, the way uh, our job future or the job scheduler works is just select a table or a project, sorry, which is a transformation, select a cluster you want to run it on. Do you want to like keep it as a manual process or do you want to trigger? Uh, automatically. If you schedule, it's enabled, then it will be triggered automatically. In this case, uh, you pick either is it daily or is it hourly or is it by minute by minute or is it particular days of the week or is it beginning of the month or end of the month or a specific date in a month and you save and you enable that pipeline and that's it. Um, every other thing is done for you behind the scene right from ingestion transforming you just sit back and focus on other things why that entire process is running right so at the end of the day right does like voyance provide like a dashboard for me to query on because i'm kind of thinking about so if you get to the end you store the data in something like bigquery or you know so on and so forth how do i kind of get data from bigquery so you mentioned like tableau dashboards for example is mm -hmm. this something is this something that Vance is integrating with or with the, with the customer just kind of get their own tableau dashboards and connect it to the storage Vance is sending the data to yeah so definitely the storage will be the ass, right so for now we are still building our own uh, data warehouse uh, part of our infrastructure that handles like similar to like redshift right and it, it will come with um, its own ability for you to like write queries, like to query that refined data and build dashboards directly from the Foyance platform. Uh, but that, that will not be available to at least end of the year, uh, where we start releasing like to specific customers. Um, right. Yeah, so for now you have your own, uh, probably your Redshift or you have standard Postgres or MySQL where you connect your Tableau or Metabase and build your dashboard. But in the future, um, we intend to release, you know, as part of our data stack where you can now run your own warehouse, your own uh, queries and dashboards directly from the platform without needing external tools. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Thank you. So I'm going to kind of open up the floor for questions now. We have something like 50 minutes to go. So, I, I mean, I have my questions, but I want anyone that has the kind of request and I would um, give them the stage. I mean, so while people are coming up, one question I had for, for you was, or is, so was one, so Valence is kind of critical in, you know, helping businesses find insights, helping businesses make decisions. Has that been like any like big, you know, well, big or small, um, like error in like variances process that has made, um, you know, like a business like make, uh, make the wrong decision, for example, like 
is this something that you see how frequently do you see it and what is kind of the process of fixing that um so far i mean we've not um had any you know type of issues like that given we don't build a transformation for you so it's like um saying the way we work right think of it this way um you want to build a car, you want a car, you can build that car yourself. So you can source for the chassis, the tires and everything, you put that together so rapidly. Now, the thing is, now imagine you having to go out to source. You just tell us, hey, I need a car. I need this specification of chassis. I need this specification of tires, brand new. I need this type of engine. And we make that available for you on the spot. So rather yeah. than you waiting for it to be shipped, we give you that instantly and we give you the tooling that allows you to, the bolts and screws to put that all together rapidly than what you normally do yourself when you source that. So that's how we kind of like see. So now, depending on how you want to build your car, maybe you're like, hey, I'm going to build that for like 600 horsepower. A person like, oh, I want just 200. The person with 200 horsepower will not expect you, will not expect to have the same performance with you at 600, right? So that engine output right is similar to like the cluster right so if you have a cluster that is big enough to handle petabyte scale of information processing the person with a smaller cluster should not be expecting to have the same performance like you right so it's all about what you want to achieve so um in terms of what challenges businesses can face i think most of the times it, it will come in from not having a clear picture of what problem you want to solve and how you're really defining, you know, um, your your problem domain and if you have data that really covers that and, and so forth. So if it's not clear enough, then yeah, that is where things get really, really messy. Right. So like my understanding here is you help um, businesses source data from different data sources. The businesses mm -hmm. supply the transformations they want to do. So they give you the binaries that they want to run. Mm -hmm. Right. So you provide the infrastructure to run these in a scalable way. Mm -hmm. And they also tell you like where they want you to store the data at the end of the day. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. Yeah. Uh, Bio, did you have a question? Yeah, I do. Um, can you hear Bio. me? Yeah, I can hear you. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Hi, Ibot. I got the talk. Uh, yeah, thanks for the session. Uh, but I think my, my question is like, if you are, so if you are moving data across, um, I don't know if I should say services or, or instances or whatever, right? But like what format mm -hmm. do you move data in? So when data leaves your, when we read data, right? Let's say it's a JDBC enabled type of database like MySQL, right? Um, when the data moves from your environment, the moment it hits our pipe, right? It's directly um, converted into um, packet format, like the Apache packet format, which is like compressed binary. Um, it sits there across the entire cluster as packet format. So packet, packet enables us one to ensure like integrity and um, we, we, we won't be losing data, except maybe that entire data center went offline. But with Packet, it allows us to like being able to like efficiently transform or process that data without losing quality also. So when data hits us, it's purely that uh, it's it's in Packet format. 
Uh, I see. Okay, so in that case, when you read, so if you read from like, if I have a MongoDB and we, we I don't know, Postgres and maybe, maybe another RTDBC, you know, connect or whatever, right? You mm -hmm. take everything from all those places, keep it in package format. Uh, yeah. So if there, if there are other processes that are consuming those, right? Yeah. Uh, there's also some transportation that happens in that yeah. yeah. Right. So what format does that also move in? So um, if it's within the cluster environment and player side, it all stays in packet. But in your case now, let's say using your use case, we are done transforming. We want to move it into, let's say, a BigQuery environment, right? Yeah. What then that happen is um, we convert the packet structure, right, into the format that will be much more okay for BigQuery, right? Like, for example, we know all the columns and their data type in package format. We will now do what we call like a schema inference, then replicate that schema, right, in BigQuery before the right process kicks in. Oh, okay. Makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. So that's how you sort of like manage schema changes. You generate on the fly. And yeah. Yeah, so we, we keep track of every single thing. At every given stage, we know the schema because like you could start with four columns, right? And end up with 20 columns. So those changes for every given stage, yeah, we have like an intermediary uh, data met, uh, metadata store that allows us to like save the schema from every stage and then go back for like inference or reference and move it to the next phase. Okay, cool. That's all my questions. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Baya. Thanks, Ibot, for, for that. Um, so we're coming up to the end now. And one question I had, you know, just to kind of round this up was, I mean, what's kind of one part of your architectural stack? Like, what part of your, what is one part of your architectural stack you're most proud of? And like, why, why are you proud of it? Um, what part I'm most proud of? I think it's our runtime engine, which is the most complex part of the entire stack. And being able to build something that moves that amount of data and being able to optimize it continuously and push new changes. I think uh, where it kind of like makes us proud as a team right is when you see that in real life action where it's enabling businesses to move you know data here and there and you, when transformation runs you see it work the way you know like it's it's designed to work uh it makes you know we, we get excited because it's extremely hard to build such a system right um the runtime engine uh is made up of over 40 different services. And those 40 different services consume combined less than 40 M, but they handle workload of over 1 billion records every month in terms of telemetry and processing. So, uh, and just three people develop that, right? So you, you can tell you how much effort how much dedication and sweat that has gone in into designing that. Our engineering team is way smaller than what a lot of people think, right? If we were to be compared to <laughs> a lot of startups uh, within the ecosystem, we'll probably be a sub-team within a team. Uh, we, 
we are fairly small, right? Um, three back end and two front room. That's how how big our team is for engineering. That's really interesting. Um, really, really interesting. Um, I mean, so how does the runtime engine kind of fit into this big picture? I'm, I'm trying to fit it into all of the stuff we've spoken about today. So when, when you're on the UI, right? Yeah. The thing is the runtime engine lives within the cluster environment, right? The runtime engine itself, it's a master multiple worker or supervisor. So you have like um, a supervisor service that lives like a sidecar. I think for people who have done Kubernetes who understand what sidecar is like, a minor service that lives closer to another service, right? So the master service of the runtime engine has a sidecar, which is like a supervisor um, service. That is what actually dishes out jobs. So this lives within the cluster environment, right? And now when you are on the UI, you're like, hey, I want to bring in data from this source, right? The processing does not happen on our servers itself directly. It's shipped to that cluster, right? So what then happens is we kind of like build what we'll call a process definition flow, right? Like based on how you kind of like um, set up everything through a, uh, a secure channel, we ship that to that cluster you want data processing to run. When it gets there, it hits the master service. The master service now will kind of like analyze that process JSON, converts that into a directed acyclic graph. That's how we process information, right? To ensure that there is always consistency in the steps. So it builds that that. And it, that now will contain several different steps, right? So one step could be ingestion, one could be drop some columns, one could be augment this column, one could be rename this column, one could be do an aggregation. Those are like different steps in the DAG, right? It would take now this DAG and send it to the supervisor and say, hey, here are tags I want you to process. So what the supervisor will now do is it will speak back to the master and say, hey, I want resources. I want to know about all resources within the cluster environment, right? So the master will reply back to the supervisor and say, okay, we have an entire cluster node of say 40 workers. Each worker machine has say 10 CPUs, 32 gigabyte of RAM, and here are the CPUs that are free for each of those machines. The supervisor now will pick the free worker nodes and ship jobs to while keeping track on these other ones that are already busy, right? As they get free, it also will check its backlog and say, hey, do I still have some job? Okay, I can push to these other workers and they will process. So for the worker side service, they will receive that feedback. They will read from the RabbitMQ. We have RabbitMQ we use for, you know, like queuing jobs. We have also Redis for like in-memory processing. So some information are stored in Redis and some are, read, are being read off from RabbitMQ. And when it does that processing, it will push for different feedback. So there are a lot of things that are happening internally, right? Like, for example, when you send something to a cluster, the cluster has an activity. We track that activity from the beginning to the end, right? There is another service that is responsible for doing that and making sure, like, okay, for that activity... Sorry, I, my stuff got muted. Okay. I can hear you now. Yeah. So um, that, that is how our runtime engine works. So it's made up of a master and multiple worker with a supervisor service.
Cool, yeah. thank you. You mentioned DAGs a lot. Um, in my mind, that DAG Derek. directed a cyclic, a cyclic Yeah. Is that like what you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is like a data engineering type thing. Yeah. So the thing is, you want to kind of like order execution based on dependencies, right? So let's say, for example, mm. your aggregation transformation depends on a particular process to be successfully done. So that will kind of like uh, give you that flexibility to ensure that if the previous step is not done, the next one will not execute. So you don't get uh, like a cyclic uh, process. So if something is done, you don't want to come back to it, right? Like you will now have like a closed cycle that this will yeah. be continuously running and never end. So the acyclic approach basically says, hey, the starting part of your graph and the ending part will never connect or never join. So that is just basically it. Cool. Thank you. One last question for you. Um, have you, like, has Voyance kind of experienced any outages? Oh. And how did you kind of... Um, get get through that oh yeah it's it's very common like for data engineering uh business or even infrastructure businesses right outages is your number one nightmare um some of the the biggest nightmares uh is we running out of um one ec2 machines because our infrastructure runs on ec2 um not enough ec2 to deploy new clusters we've had emails that come like oh we can't deploy new cluster oh this thing is broken clusters cannot be created right so um, the thing is, AWS, right, when you create your account for the first time, AWS gives you some sort of um, limit to what number of CPUs, like virtual CPUs, you can basically create. So for every time you provision an EC2 instance, right, there are numbers of virtual CPUs that get consumed. So it's just like a list where that counter kind of like drops for every time you have a, an active CPU, uh, EC2 instance running. Right, so um, when we started, those are some of the things we're not aware of. And you will have a business that will kind of like provision, say, 100 clusters and virtual CPUs are finished. They themselves want to deploy another cluster and it's not possible. So you're now faced with that whole um, massive challenge of keeping, you know, things up and running. So we had to continuously uh, reach out to like our support person at AWS to get us uh, more virtual CPU, which it's a whole process of writing um, why you need that and what are the EC2 machines um, that you'll be using. So you can't just like, Blank tell them, oh, I need more virtual CPU. You need to specify which type of EC2 machines, what are you using them for, and uh, going from there. So, yeah. Well, it sounds like um, data engineering is very expensive because my AWS journey, small, small EC2 expenses, they always bill me plenty. So, <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, I don't want to say the bills because, like, you know... Uh, <laughs> Uh, if you mess up, you could find yourself with a fifty k, hundred thousand dollar bill. At the end, AWS doesn't care. You, yeah, you need to pay those bills. So, okay, yeah. So yeah, this was this was really good. Um, thank you so much for you know all the explanations. I've I've learned a lot here about data engineering. Um, I don't like no one else. You know, came up for questions, so I guess no one has. But this was very this was fun. This was uh. 
also like a learning experience. So thanks, thanks for coming, and hopefully thanks we have you another time. All right, thank you, thanks everyone. So we'll end thank here. You're welcome. Right, thank you, everyone. Thank you, but thank you, thanks everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I'll send me money after please. This one that I have one thousand dollars to give you the So give me only five thousand. Oh, right. Bye. <laughs> All right. Yeah.